The debt ceiling bill is now in the hands of the U.S. Senate. Senator Jeff Merkley, an Oregon Democrat, says he won't vote for it. Everything in this was off the Republican wish list. This was not some of ours, some of yours. This was a hostage-taking. It is Thursday, June 1st. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody in for Lisa Mullins. You'll hear that evidence indicates the city of Davenport, Iowa, knew about the deteriorating conditions of a building that collapsed this week. Also, scientists have new information about what you remember when you were not awake. The question is whether by changing the architecture of sleep, you can help memory. And you'll get a WBUR report on a lawsuit filed against the city of Worcester and the Worcester Police Department by protesters and bystanders who say they were assaulted by police during racial justice protests in 2020. It's 401. The news is first. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The Biden administration is rolling out proposed rules aimed at making home valuations more fair. NPR's Scott Detrow reports the practice has been historically rife with bias and racial discrimination. The proposed rules would establish new standards around the algorithms that help determine how much homes are worth. Introducing the proposal, Vice President Harris noted how most Americans count on the value of their homes to build wealth, and how people of color have often seen their homes assessed at lower levels. Black homeowners are more likely to have their homes undervalued than other homeowners, and homeowners in majority black and majority Latino neighborhoods are almost twice as likely to be undervalued. The administration is also proposing new rules to make it easier for homeowners to appeal low valuations. Scott Detrow, NPR News, Washington. President Biden fell while he was on stage at the commencement ceremony for the United States Air Force Academy today. People quickly rushed to help Biden. He got back on his feet and kept walking. The White House says the 80-year-old is fine. Immigrant workers nationwide are staging a strike today to protest a new immigration law in Florida. Danielle Pryor with member station WMFE has details. Florida's new immigration law makes it illegal to transport or shelter undocumented immigrants and raises fines for businesses who employ undocumented workers. Hospitals also have to ask about a person's immigration status. Immigrant advocacy group Hope Community Center organized the worker strike in Orlando, where hundreds of workers and their families called on the state to repeal this law. Director Felipe Souza Lazabale. It is a movement of everyday people, and I truly believe that sometimes, sometimes David wins against Goliath. And this is a fight for our rights, it's a fight for our existence. Governor Ron DeSantis says the law is needed in order to curb immigration at the U.S. Mexico border. For NPR News, I'm Danielle Pryor. A bipartisan agreement to suspend the federal debt limit and avoid default goes before members of the U.S. Senate after it passed the House yesterday. Congressional leaders are under pressure to drum up enough support in their respective parties. Democratic Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. So today, I hope we see a genuine desire to keep this process moving quickly. I hope we see nothing even approaching brinksmanship. The country cannot afford that right now. Instead, I hope we see bipartisan cooperation. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen projects that as of Monday, the United States will no longer be able to meet its financial obligations. The Dow Jones Industrial Average closes up 153 points, or roughly half a percent, ending the day at 33,061. The Nasdaq was up 1.2 percent at 13,100. The S&P was up 41 points. You're listening to NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Protesters and bystanders who say they were assaulted by Worcester police during racial justice demonstrations in June 2020 are suing the city and the police department. The group's lawsuit comes as the Department of Justice is investigating whether Worcester police have a pattern of using excessive force and discriminatory policing. WBUR's Ali Jarmanning has more. The lawsuit claims that Worcester police retaliated against bystanders who were using their phones to record police shooting tear gas and so-called less-than-lethal rounds at crowds, and that police then tried to cover up alleged wrongdoing by writing false reports. Attorney Hector Pinheiro says none of the officers involved in the arrests were ever disciplined. The police department is unwilling to hold anybody accountable from the bottom to the top. One of the reasons for this lawsuit is to change that, to put the microscope on what happened. The lawsuit also says that Worcester police did not have a policy on how to de-escalate during protests and when to use force. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Allie Jarmani. Worcester police declined to comment on the lawsuit. City officials did not yet respond. A national marijuana company is closing its Massachusetts dispensaries at the end of this month. Trulieve says it plans to close its locations in Framingham, Worcester, and Northampton and close its Holyoke manufacturing facility. The company says it's going to focus on markets it thinks have long-term potential. Trulieve operates in 11 states. The Boston Public School System reports a child at a Dorchester Elementary School brought a pellet gun to school this morning. Boston police describe the Martin Luther King School student as kindergarten age. School staff confiscated the pellet gun without incident and notified police. It's 81 degrees in Boston, lows in the mid-60s tonight, a chance of some showers and thunderstorms tomorrow. Tomorrow north and west of Boston, the high will be about 90, about 80 at the coast. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Indeed a hiring platform for helping businesses of all sizes attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one place. More at Indeed.com slash NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. All right, it's Thursday, June 1st. The federal government has until next Monday, June 5th, to raise the debt ceiling and avoid defaulting on its financial obligations. Now, the compromise bill to do that passed the narrowly divided House of Representatives yesterday by a less narrow vote of 314 in favor to 117 against. Now the bill heads to the Senate, where leaders of both parties support its swift passage. But not everyone is on board, on the right or on the left. In a statement, Democratic Senator Jeff Merkley of Oregon said, quote, I cannot in good conscience vote for this bill. We asked Senator Merkley to join us to explain. Welcome, Senator. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you. It's a pleasure to have you. So in that statement that you issued, your primary opposition to this bill, the way I understand it, is based on environmental concerns, specifically regarding a natural gas pipeline through Appalachian states and changes to an environmental protection law, right? Can you just tell me why these issues were red lines for you? Well, really, there are three big problems with the bill. And the first is that the way it was negotiated Mm -hmm. and conceding to the hostage-taking means there will be hostage-taking on every other debt ceiling into the future. We have to end that cycle of this self-destructive activity. 
The second is that I've been hearing from my constituents about what they want us to do. And they are talking about, hey, we need help with affordable housing, mental health programs, stopping fentanyl, and restoring child care. And this bill will do a lot to undermine any federal programs that could possibly help with those four key things. And then the third, as you mentioned, this bill is a climate catastrophe. We keep greenlighting new fossil fuel projects while we are essentially already at the carbon cap, very close to it for 1.5 degrees. And America has burned most of that carbon. The rest of the world is looking at us uh, saying, hey, you're, you're preaching climate, but you're not walking the, the walk. Uh, you're continuing to be one of the biggest polluters in the world. I hear your concerns, but you know it's clear that neither side got everything they wanted out of this compromise. And the Biden administration has been arguing that this legislation still preserves a number of key climate or environmental priorities. Do you think that that is fair of them to say that? If you're talking compromise, everything in this was off the Republican wish list. This was not some of ours, some of yours. This was a hostage taking for doing damage to the environment and, uh, well, undermining, in addition, all of the key provisions of NEPA, the, the bedrock environmental law. In this, and this has been way underreported, our whole series of changes that do things like saying corporations can write their own environmental impact statement. That is the proverbial fox in the hen house. And there's like five of those provisions stuck into this bill. Even so, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, your Democratic leader in the Senate, is encouraging that the chamber pass this bill quickly without amendments that would stall the process. He says that time is a luxury that the Senate does not have if we want to prevent default. What is your response to Schumer's position there? The egregious pieces of this bill are not ones that can accommodate. Uh, Certainly, it is the case that normally we do all we can to help promote a Democratic president, and that's uh, Schumer's work. You know, he's helping uh, President Biden in this, and he was part of the negotiation. But listen, the key here is that from the very beginning, this was a failure of imagination. And by that, I mean you have the president envisioning this as either the Republicans drive this over the cliff, or I take a whole bunch of stuff off their agenda and help get it passed. Meanwhile, he had very powerful executive tools that he never put to work. He never pursued a Protect Our Credit Act that would end this cycle of of hostage taking. And so we are where we are now that I cannot in good conscience vote for this bill. Democratic Senator Jeff Merkley of Oregon, thank you very much for your time today. You're very welcome also. Thank you. Tupperware, which once revolutionized women's lives, is facing financial peril. The brand sealed its spot in American lore as a synonym for kitchen storage. But these days, Tupperware struggles to keep itself fresh, as NPR's Alina Seljuk reports. Goes in the big one, like that. Stacey Satung calls herself the Philly Tupperware lady. She started selling Tupperware during the pandemic, now trying it on Instagram and TikTok. I've gotten four sales from TikTok this week, which feels like so exciting. Individual dealers like her to this day are how Tupperware makes most of its money. They often sell on Facebook or at virtual parties. The company does have a website, thousands of trendy things like cold brew carafts and ice pop molds. 
but its fundamentals harken back to its roots. Tupperware is best when it's shown. Women selling to women, ideally in a living room. When I have the ability to go to a house and do a house party, I just love, love, love it because I can cut an onion for you in three seconds or we can bake a cake in the microwave. Now Tupperware is scrambling to avoid bankruptcy. This happened slowly over a decade. Growing debt, a shrinking sales force, declining sales. Faith Davis Ruffin says also huge shifts in our habits. I really think that it's people's lives. American lives change tremendously. She's a curator at the National Museum of American History, whose Tupperware collection is proof of just how influential these products once were. Close the door, come in. Close the alarm will go off. In a storage room above the public museum, Ruffins opens a cabinet to a rainbow of pastels and earth tones. Various kinds of Tupperware that range from little cups to bigger storage bowls. Looks like some spoons. And some spears, like you put... Um, sandwiches. Yeah, little sandwiches or little finger food on. It's like a dream 1950s cupboard, except we have to wear surgical gloves. Well, you know, we're in the forever business. The forever business was certainly Tupperware's dream, the brainchild of inventor Earl Tupper. After World War II, he created the softer plastic and a patented lid with a double seal, said to be inspired by the paint can. Here's an early ad. You can freeze it, stack it, any which way. The invention really needed a show and tell. Enter a single mother in Detroit named Brownie Wise, who convinced Tupper to sell at Tupperware parties and led their runaway success. She tapped a cultural moment. Women lost wartime jobs back to men. A spike in divorces left Manny scrambling for income. And of course, the baby boom, sprawling suburbs, bigger families, housewives in aprons. The girls get together and meet their old friends and make some new ones. Then there's a demonstration. Tupperware ladies got a cut of each sale and won wild rewards like Cadillacs. Brownie Wise became the first woman on the cover of Business Week for letting generations of homemakers see themselves as saleswomen. Here's Ruffins. Tupperware becomes a kind of iconic example of home life and domesticity. It spread everywhere. Even the queen at Buckingham Palace was said to keep cornflakes in a Tupperware. When Tupper's patents expired in the 80s, his special lid became common, and his company name outgrew the company. Now we might buy Rubbermaid or Glad or OXO, but is it plastic for leftovers? That's a Tupperware. At the American History Museum, I ran into some high school students by display of classic Tupperware. How many of you knew it was an actual name of an actual brand? Is it a brand? It's a brand. Okay. No, I thought it was just the regular name for, like, containers. Now Tupperware's debt is over 10 times bigger than the company's value. For years, it spent big on dividends for shareholders and committed to selling through dealers instead of stores. Only last year did it finally sign a long-term partnership with Target. During the pandemic, when everyone cooked at home, Tupperware's profits suddenly surged. Executives claimed, see, things are turning around. But it was a blip. Ruffins, as a historian, takes the long view. Many American companies do not last 75 or 80 years. There is a saying that everyone dies twice, once with your last breath and again when your name is spoken for the last time. By that measure, Tupperware did crack the forever business, even if it goes out of business. Alina Selyuk, NPR News.
Summer is around the corner, and in Georgia, summer means peaches. But roughly 90% of the peach state's crop has been destroyed. As WABA's Sam Greenglass reports from Atlanta, weather and climate are to blame. The last time things were this bad was 1955. That's according to Lawton Pearson, a Pearson farm in Fort Valley, Georgia. I didn't see it. I wasn't alive. <laughs> My dad was only six. My grandfather picked two peaches, and they went to California for the summer. Peaches require a minimum number of chill hours, below 45 degrees, to set fruit. But the first three months of this year were the warmest on record in Georgia, and chill hours here have been declining over the years. That is climate change. Growers are experimenting with new varieties that need fewer chill hours. Some of those did get the cold they needed, but right when they were blooming, a spurt of unlucky freezing weather. You have a low-chill peach that was perfectly fine with this winter. So it bloomed, and then it got four nights under 28. Can't win either way. So don't count on sinking your teeth into a peach from the peach state anytime soon. Not Georgia peaches. Uh-uh. I don't think you'll see Georgia peaches in a grocery store. Pearson's summer staff will be down to 40 from the typical 250. He can't retreat to California like his grandfather did in 55. The business has diversified, including a growing pecan crop. But Pearson says looking at trees with no peaches is painful. Oh, God. Yeah. One bright spot, the few that do make it benefit from having all the sun, water, and nutrients to themselves. The peaches you're left with sometimes are fantastic, and they're huge, and they're sweeter than like, the peaches we have are awesome. It just leaves you want more. Pearson's ready for August when peach season is over and he can look to next year. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 418. And coming up in about 20 minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, dancers at a Los Angeles bar have become the first strippers in the nation to win union recognition. And they say they hope to inspire their peers across the U.S. to unionize. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sunbug Solar, helping to grow renewable energy in Massachusetts since 2009. To learn about solar energy employment opportunities, visit sunbugsolar.com. And Simone Lee at the ICA. See why Lee was named one of Time's Top 100. Now on view, icaboston.org. On Wall Street today, the Dow gained just under a half percent. The S&P was up about one percent. The Nasdaq closed the day up just under 1.3 percent. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. Join a community of problem solvers at the school ranked first in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report. Babson's hands-on approach helps you develop critical thinking and communication skills so you can lead, innovate, and inspire. Begin your entrepreneurial leadership journey at babson.edu slash success. It is a warm first day of meteorological summer. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce has the forecast. 
There is some relief out there thanks to a sea breeze, wind off the ocean keeping the temperatures in the 70s to around 80. Hot spots north and west of Boston, right around 90. Low clouds and patchy fog fill in tonight. Burnoff tomorrow will be around 90 again. 80 at the coast and 70s on the Cape. Scattered thunderstorms pop from early afternoon onward. Brief downpours, lightning, gusty wind will be possible. These break the heat with a dramatic drop in temperatures for the weekend will only be in the mid to upper 50s both days with lingering showers. It is 81 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org slash solutions. And from Ion Television, presenting the Scripps National Spelling Bee. The two-night event airs Wednesday, May 31st and Thursday, June 1st at 8, 7 central on Ion. Learn more at spellingbee.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. As Chilean musician Alex Anvanter was putting together his latest album, he had a simple test to see if the songs were danceable. It was the middle of COVID. I didn't have like a dance studio in my bedroom using a yoga mat and wearing my AirPods, just like trying, trying it out in front of the mirror. That's right. It was a one-man bedroom mirror dance party. And that requirement, danceability, was crucial here. Anvanter was set on making a dance album, or maybe more specifically, a dance floor album. To me, as a queer person, it has always functioned as some sort of, like, safe haven, I suppose. The result is an homage to dance floor culture and the liberation it provides. A disco-infected album called El Diablo en el Cuerpo, or The Devil in the Body. The album is a bit abstract, but it's also about the way we communicate with the body and it's a lot about desire as well and pursuing desire and the effects of pursuing desire and societal norms around pursuing desire. So I think when I'm saying I have the devil in my body, what I'm saying is I want to communicate my desire through my body mm. and I don't care if that goes against certain social grain or whatever. So. What happens when you give yourself over to desire? Well, for instance, it might go against what is perceived as like true love, saying only being sexually with one person for the rest of your life. But also it's, for me, desire also is extremely related to self-image yeah. and how we want to be and how we communicate that. It's a very like complex web of desires that we act upon or repress and somehow I think the nightlife kind of dissolves or all of that repression and those rules and that's why I kind of set the themes of the of the album in the dance floor so to speak. I want to ask you about the song Una de Nosotras which yeah. is about growing up queer in Santiago, Chile. 
What was your childhood like? I know that's a huge question, <laughs> but uh, paint some broad brushstrokes for me. Well, for starters, I grew up in the middle of the dictatorship. Uh, I was born in 83. The dictatorship of Pinochet ended in 89. And uh, it was such a different country, like very strange, politically silent. Mm. There was nothing to be said about any social issues. It was a pretty conservative society. And growing up queer was a little weird, I guess. Going to gay clubs or something wasn't like something that was very accepted or even like common. I remember in 2011, so not that long ago, I put out a song, it was kind of a love song, directed to a boy, a guy, mm -hmm. and uh, it was all over the news, like, it was a first in Chile. It was revolutionary to be seen. <laughs> yeah, about something it was like so that. weird, like, I didn't even think about that, like, that there hadn't been any, like, love songs, like, same-sex love songs before I wrote that. Well, I wanted to ask you about the juxtaposition between the lyrics in Una de Nosotras, which are heavy, but but the song, it's kind of a beat. It's got this classic yeah. <laughs> house feel. I mean, one of the lyrics is, I've been hiding from others for a while. Friend, I don't want to feel life is broken. Was it purposeful to dress up such a difficult story inside such an happy beat? <laughs> no, it's kind of a, a thing I do, and I really like it. I, I find that, like, ebullient music tends to go very well with dramatic lyrics. This is something that I feel is very Latino. <laughs> <laughs> but also, I think the feeling of ecstasy that a beat or like a dance song can produce goes really well when you're trying to be vulnerable and connect emotionally. And the, the, it produces a sort of a deeper elation, if you will, when you're dancing and at the same time thinking about something that's kind of profound. Right. Well, can I also ask, one of the lyrics in that same song is, Take Me to the Blondie, which is <laughs> yeah. a dance club in Santiago, right? Yeah. Was this a club that that meant something quite important to you when you were growing up there? Yeah, for sure. It's like uh, almost a rite of initiation going to Blondie discotheque. It's still there. It's an institution. Now I go do shows mostly there, but I can't go because there's too many people that listen to my music, so I can't really go like incognito. Once I, <laughs> I wore up like a bandana around my, my face and people still recognize me, it was like, how do Could you ever. know it's me? Like, it was so weird. Anyway, uh, it's a great place and uh, I remember my first time there. I don't know exactly what I was wearing. I must have been like 14 or 15, people go out really young <laughs> in South America, yeah. parenthesis. I love um, that. And someone pointed at me and said like, oh, the little boys choir of Vienna or something. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> what? <laughs> like, I thought I was dressing like super cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are now based in New York City, and um, it made me wonder, do you miss the dance floors of Santiago? It's a great question. I do, and at the same time, I had to say goodbye to them 
before leaving Chile, not to toot my own horn, but I'm more famous <laughs> than I'm here, obviously. Um, so I couldn't really go out dancing that much, as much uh, as I wanted. But you enjoy the greater anonymity in New York City that you have yes, when you go out absolutely. dancing? Yes, absolutely, yeah. Okay, so Alex, when you are seized with the desire to go and dance, please tell me you go further than your yoga mat. <laughs> well, the yoga mat was my COVID. Uh, it was co a COVID restraint, so yeah. I like disco, actually. I like dancing to disco music, and there's great disco parties uh, here in New York, so that's my go-to, I think. That is Chilean singer, songwriter, and producer Alex Anvanter. His new album is called El Diablo and El Cuerpo. Thank you so much. I so enjoyed this. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It is 429 and coming up in about 15 minutes. Most Performing Arts Awards feature gendered performance categories. This month, for the first time, non-binary performers have a chance to win at the Tony Awards, Broadway's highest honors. It's 81 degrees in Boston. Lows in the mid-60s tonight. Tomorrow, a chance of some showers and thunderstorms. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSC SIPC. Tens of thousands of young people spend time behind bars. We make mistakes, but we want to change, you know? Educators are helping them make that change with a new music program for juvenile detention. How young people are lifting their voices to tell stories of courage and resilience. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The bipartisan bill that would raise the nation's debt ceiling is facing its next big test, a vote in the Senate. After passing the House last night, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says he wants to finish up without bringing the issue down to the wire. The Senate will stay in session until we send a bill avoiding default to President Biden's desk. We will keep working until the job is done. Time is a luxury the Senate does not have if we want to 
prevent default. Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell also signaled that he would work for quick passage. With just four days until the nation could default on its debt, lawmakers are scrambling to get the bill to the president's desk for his signature. The Biden administration is accusing both sides of violating a ceasefire in Sudan and expressed regret the army walked away from talks with a rival paramilitary force. Those talks have now been suspended. And NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports the administration is imposing some sanctions. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan says the U.S. will do everything it can to prevent the conflict between two rival generals from becoming another protracted war. He says the fighting in Sudan has already stolen far too many lives. Sullivan says the U.S. is imposing economic sanctions and visa restrictions on actors perpetuating the violence, though his statement didn't name any of them. The news comes just days after the U.S. and Saudi Arabia, which had been hosting talks, announced the warring sides would extend their ceasefire. U.S. diplomats say there have been serious violations by both sides. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. At the close on Wall Street, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was up 153 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Two new leaders of the MBTA are warning it might be a while before writers see improvements. WBUR's Andrea Perdomo Hernandez reports the comments were made during a forum today that focused on the transit system's troubles. We'll have more on that story later. A group is suing the city of Worcester and its police department. The people in the group say they were assaulted by officers during racial justice demonstrations. The lawsuit claims that three years ago, Worcester police retaliated against bystanders who were using their phones to record police firing tear gas and so-called less-than-lethal rounds at crowds. Worcester police will not comment on the lawsuit. The city has not yet responded to requests for comment. A former engineer from Lexington is going to prison for six months after his conviction on charges of stealing trade secrets. Last year, a federal jury found 45-year-old Hao Young Yu guilty of stealing a microchip that's used in aerospace and defense applications. Prosecutors say he took the material from his employer, Wilmington-based analog devices. At his sentencing today, he also was ordered to pay $55,000 in restitution. Returning now to that story about the tea, WBUR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez reports that tea leaders made remarks during a forum today focused on the transit system's troubles. Phil Ang took over as the tea's general manager almost two months ago. He says he's dedicated to improving safety and reliability for riders. They are counting on us to deliver, and we are going to do that for them. The new chair of the MBTA's board of directors, Thomas Glynn, also spoke at the forum. Glynn says the board and other officials are dedicated to making the tea better, but it won't happen overnight. You know, I think people will see a different tea a year from now, but I don't know if they'll see a different tea in two months. The advisory board hopes to host another public forum in the coming months. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. It's 434. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. It's 81 degrees in Boston. Tomorrow, you can expect a chance of some showers and thunderstorms in the afternoon and evening. North and west of Boston tomorrow, high will be around 90, about 80 at the coast. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Plymouth Gin Distillery, 
Plymouth gin is imported from England's southwest coast, distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth gin since 1793. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. In a moment, we'll hear about why Jordan and Saudi Arabia are planning on an amiable future. But first to Davenport, Iowa, where authorities say they are still looking for at least three people after the partial collapse of a large apartment building in the city's downtown over the weekend. A long paper trail shows the city has been aware for months of the building's deteriorating condition and the concerns of its residents. Iowa Public Radio's Zachary Oren-Smith has been covering this story and joins us now. Hi there. Hi. So, Zachary, this building is in the center of downtown Davenport, and the collapse happened on Sunday. Bring us up to speed. What has been happening since Sunday? Yeah, that's right. Uh, The main focus since Sunday has been on search and rescue. Remember, this is a large building with 90 units. 50 residents in Davenport were displaced following its collapse. Um, And it's been difficult to locate some because it served as emergency housing for so many of those residents. That makes some of uh, their whereabouts difficult to determine. Today, authorities said two people who were missing have been accounted for um, off-site, and that's good news. But it's been really frustrating and scary, especially for Mike Collier. His cousin, Brandon Colvin, is one of those still missing. Yesterday they found a woman. They said that they had searched through all of the building and no one was in there. But yesterday they found a woman in there. So uh, evident, it's evident that they don't really know uh, if anyone is still in the building. And as you can hear in that cut, a lot of the people are, are protesting this. Many I spoke to are angry about the city's response to the partial collapse and subsequent search. Yeah, you can hear that. So, Zachary, is the city actually demolishing this building? That's complicated. After it collapsed Sunday, the plan was to demolish the building as early as Tuesday, um, but that got delayed indefinitely after a resident was discovered waving from the fourth floor window um, despite search and rescue team's best efforts. Um, It's been a very trying situation all around. Mayor Mike Madsen said they are making decisions based on the best information that they have, and sometimes that's not a lot. Do I have regrets about this tragedy? and about people potentially losing their lives. Hell yeah. Do I think about this every moment? Hell yeah. I apologize for me getting a little wordy here. There's no real indication of when the building will be torn down yet. Okay, and you've written recently about the structural concerns surrounding this building. What did you find there? Yeah, this morning uh, we published on a number of red flags stakeholders raised about the building prior to its collapse. For um, a structural engineer hired by the owner detailed issues with a load-bearing beam, as well as issues with a facade that was integral to supporting the building's uh, integrity. Um, The facade was peeling away from the apartment building. As early as February, one utility company refused to conduct work near the facility, citing concerns for worker safety. You mentioned the owners. So far, what have they had to say about this collapse? 
Um, the, the owner, Andrew Wold, issued a statement recently, and I quote, uh, we have been working closely with the American Red Cross and other agencies to assist the displaced tenants affected by this event. We are forever grateful to them for all of their assistance with our tenants, end quote. Um, the city is taking action on uh, against Wold. He's been fined 300 bucks, which sounds really small in context of the yeah. collapse of a multi-million dollar apartment building. But the city said today, the uh, city attorney said today um, that that's to prevent uh, Wold from transferring ownership and avoiding mm. costs related to its demolition. He has a court set for a court date set for later this month. Um, but at the moment, um, officials have not determined a cause or uh, calls for the collapse. We're waiting to hear more on that. That is Iowa Public Radio's Zachary Oren Smith. Thanks for your reporting. Thank you. That singing you hear? It's about unity between Jordan and Saudi Arabia today. The occasion is a royal wedding in Amman. Jordan's crown prince, the heir to the throne, is marrying a woman from Saudi Arabia. Here's Crown Prince Hussein taking his vows. But this is more than the story of a young couple. It also carries political overtones that are creating a buzz across the region. NPR's Aya Batrawi joins us now from Dubai. Hi, Aya. Hi, Elsa. So I want to go back to the bride and groom for a moment. What can you tell us about this couple? So the groom is Crown Prince Hussein bin Abdullah, Jordan's future king. The 28-year-old is named after his grandfather, King Hussein, who ruled Jordan for almost 50 years and cemented it as a U.S. ally in the region. And Prince Hussein, he's been in the spotlight since he was born. Um, And now he's being groomed to succeed his 61-year-old father, King Abdullah II. Um, So since graduating from Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. and attending the U.K.'s Royal Military Academy at Sandhurst, the young crown prince has been at his father's side in meetings at the White House. Um, And as for the bride, Rajwa al-Saif, she's fluent in Arabic, English, and French, and she studied architecture in New York and design in L.A., But what really stands out about her is her Saudi heritage. Her father is a wealthy businessman who runs one of the biggest construction companies in the Middle East out of Saudi Arabia. And crucially, her mother hails from the Al-Sudaidi family. And that directly links to the maternal lineage of Saudi Arabia's King Salman and the crown prince. And I think that's why, yeah, this marriage has gotten so much attention, not just because it's the wedding of a future king, presumably, but because it's really being seen as a union between Jordan's royal family and Saudi Arabia's. So can you tell us about who attended this wedding and what their attendance tells us about the wider regional implications of this marriage? So, yeah, I mean, you had First Lady Jill Biden at the wedding, underscoring again the close ties between the U.S. and Jordan. There were monarchs from across Asia and Europe, like Prince William and his wife, too, all there supporting one another. But this is not the first time a Jordanian marries a Saudi, um, a royal Jordanian marries a Saudi. And um, the royal family of Jordan actually has links to Saudi Arabia that stretched centuries. Jordan's royal Hashemite family draws its lineage to Mecca and to the prophet Muhammad. And that gives the king of Jordan added gravitas as custodian of the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound, one of the holiest sites in Jerusalem. Um, But just a couple of years ago, an indictment in a court in Jordan accused a senior Jordanian prince of seeking Saudi backing in a plot to overthrow Jordan's king. Now, Saudi Arabia, of course, says it supports Jordan's monarch and stability there, but that episode made public simmering tensions between the two countries. 
Well, ultimately, Aya, what does this wedding mean for Jordanians and for the country as a whole? Well, it's a chance for the royal family to shore up their image and popularity. Thousands of people lined the streets today to see the young couple in a motorcade procession. It's a moment of pride, the, you know, the country coming together. But look, Jordan is a small country. It's wrangling with high unemployment. It hosts millions of Palestinian Syrian refugees. The family, the royal family has come under scrutiny for their spending and wealth overseas. Um, but I think it's fair to say a lot is riding on the success of Crown Prince Hussein and his wife, now Princess Rajwa, as they step into their new lives as a married couple with an eye on one day becoming king and queen. No pressure. That is NPR's Aya Batrawe on the royal wedding in Jordan today. Thank you so much, Aya. Thank you. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. After more than a year on the picket line, dancers at a topless club in Los Angeles prevailed in a long-running battle against the owners of a strip club to recognize their union. They are now the only unionized strippers in America, and advocates hope it'll inspire other strippers around the country to organize. Sergio Olmos reports from Los Angeles. After 15 months of being on strike, Strippers at the Star Garden Bar in North Hollywood are coming back to work soon, but now under collective bargaining agreement. The dancers went on strike last year after organizers say their concerns about workplace safety, like customer harassment and poorly maintained stages, went unaddressed by management. A former stripper, now a lead organizer with Strippers United, asked to be identified only by her stage name Stony, to protect her identity and safety. She says the stigma of stripping can prevent honest discussion about dancers' rights. We are workers too, and we have a right to dignity and respect, same as any other worker. And even if people may find our job to be immoral, that doesn't mean we deserve to be unsafe. In May, the club's 17 dancers voted unanimously to join the Actors' Equity Association, a union with 51,000 members representing actors and stage managers from Broadway to Walt Disney World. After a long fight, the owners finally recognized the union and have 30 days to start negotiating a contract with the dancers. A dancer at Star Garden who goes by the stage name Selena says the union drive was a difficult and often humiliating process. She recalls one encounter with a representative of the Federal Occupational Safety and Health Administration, or OSHA, the agency charged with overseeing safety in the workplace. We also had an OSHA employee tell us directly and pray over us that our sins were going to be repent because we did the type of work that's favored by the devil. For months, the bar's owners tried to stop the union drive, arguing the dancers were not employees, but independent performers leasing space in the club. The National Labor Relations Board, or NLRB, didn't buy that argument. The attorney representing the owners of Star Garden did not respond to NPR's request for comment. The dancers hope to inspire other strippers to stand up for their labor rights. Kate Schindel is the president of Actors Equity Association. She says they're already looking to include more strippers nationwide. I know we're already talking to at least one other club seriously. Schindel says this is the right fit. Actors Equity understands the workplace challenges strippers can face. We already had so many things in our contract that although the work is not identical, we're seeking to protect against a lot of the things that the dancers encounter. Broken glass on the stage, audience interaction, 
you know, general safety, sexual harassment, even things like nudity in auditions are things that are covered by our collective bargaining agreements. The NLRB could soon rule on a case that could impact the classification of independent contractors in the workplace. That could ease the way for more workers to join unions and provide them protections from any potential retaliation for doing so, especially those that commonly lease space in a business, such as hairstylists, fitness instructors, and even strippers. For NPR News, I'm Sergio Olmos in Los Angeles. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Thanks for joining 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 448, and coming up in about 20 minutes, you'll get the story on a federal court in Texas hearing arguments in a long-running case about the future of DACA. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Listening to WBUR is a great way to follow the news and another great option checking your inbox. Each weekday morning, WBUR Today provides a quick read on what matters in Boston and beyond. Subscribe now at WBUR.org slash newsletters. It's 81 degrees in Boston. Tonight, the lows will drop to the mid-60s. Tomorrow, a chance of some showers and thunderstorms in the afternoon. As for temperatures north and west of Boston, high will be around 90 degrees. It'll be about 80 at the coast. Then Saturday, some showers and a chance of thunderstorms. Highs only in the 50s. Same for Sunday. Showers likely highs in the 50s. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders, movers, and changemakers to close opportunity gaps, advance equity, and power a better Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. The recent causes of inflation may be easing, the pandemic, supply chain bottlenecks, but prices don't seem to be going down. What firms do is pursue profits, but in these kind of emergencies, they have opportunities to pursue profits in ways in which they do not have in other kinds of times. And that is a huge problem. That's On Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. During sleep, the brain strengthens memories that it expects to use in the future. And now scientists say they have found a way to enhance this process. NPR's John Hamilton reports on research that might someday help people with memory loss from Alzheimer's disease. There's a lot going on in our brains at night, and Dr. Yitzhak Fried, a neurosurgeon at UCLA, says much of this activity involves rhythmic electrical pulses. Brain cells are firing and then pausing, firing and pausing. Some of those brain rhythms can help transform a daily event into a memory that can last for weeks or longer, a process called memory consolidation. So Fried and a team of scientists wanted to watch this happen in people but also trying actually to boost memory, to boost this process. 
To do that, the team needed some volunteers. So they approached 18 patients with severe epilepsy. They already had electrodes in their brain, which the team could use to monitor and alter their brain rhythms. Fried says one member of his team created a fun memory test. Well, what we call a celebrity pet. She presented a certain celebrity with a certain pet. So I think the patient found it engaging. The goal was to remember which animal went with which celebrity. Patients saw the images before going to bed. Then, while they slept, some of them got tiny pulses of electricity through the wires in their brains. Fried says the pulses were designed to synchronize two distant brain areas involved in memory consolidation the hippocampus, and the prefrontal cortex. So we were measuring the activity in one area, deep in the brain, and then based on this, we were stimulating in a different area. The approach worked. Fried says in patients who got the stimulation, rhythms in the two brain areas became more synchronized. And when those patients woke up, they did better on the celebrity pet test. That synchrony really correlated well with the memory improvement. Reed says the results, which appear in the journal Nature Neuroscience, need to be confirmed in a larger study. Even so, he says, they suggest a new way to help people with sleep and memory problems. We know, for instance, that in patients with dementia, with Alzheimer, sleep is not working very well at all. The question is whether by changing the architecture of sleep, you can help memory. The experiment was based on decades of research done by scientists including Dr. Yuri Bujaki of New York University. Bujaki says brain rhythms are how different areas of the brain communicate. If you would like to talk to the brain, you have to talk to the brain in its own language. Bujaki says in healthy people, brain rhythms are already optimized. He says these epilepsy patients may have improved because they started out with sleep and memory problems. These people are under medication. These people have perturbed sleep. So maybe what happened here is just making worse memories better. Even so, Bujaki says this approach has the potential to help millions of people with impaired memory. And he says brain rhythms are involved in lots of other critical functions. They are not specific to memory. They are doing a lot of other things, emotions, emotional regulations. They are served by the same kind of rhythms. Subhashaki says tweaking brain rhythms might also help with disorders like depression. John Hamilton, NPR News. Most performing arts awards like the Oscars and the Emmys feature gendered performance categories. Recently, some theater ceremonies have done away with male and female distinctions, but not the Tony Awards, which are Broadway's highest honors. Yet, Jeff London reports that this June, for the first time ever, a couple of non-binary performers may take home statues. We don't gender other people's professions. You say, I'm going to my doctor, I'm going to my dentist, and I need to hire a plumber. Alex Newell is playing the female character Lulu in Shucked. They are up for Best Featured Actor in a Musical, the category in which they chose to be recognized. And so I looked at the word actor because it is a genderless word. The word itself is not gendered. That is my profession. That is my vocation. I am an actor. The issue of gendered acting categories came to the fore in February when Justin David Sullivan, who made their Broadway debut in the musical And Juliet, declined to be considered for a Tony. I am a non-binary human 
and I am playing a non-binary principal role in a Broadway musical, which we really don't see a lot of that. So I think for them to ask whether I would rather be seen more as, you know, male or female, I just felt like I couldn't rightfully make that call. Feels like I'm caught in the middle That's when I realize I'm not a girl Not yet a woman Sullivan made a public statement saying, quote, I hope that award shows across the industry will expand their reach to be able to honor and award people of all gender identities, which created a lot of chatter. In that moment, it felt like all eyes were on me. And I don't know if I was really prepared for that. <laughs> I am just, you know, one human at the end of the day. Sullivan says some people twisted their words, but... The majority of the response that I saw was just a complete vast ocean of support and love and care from both the Broadway community and other fellow non-binary performers. Representatives for the Tony Awards declined to speak for this story. David Barber is co-president of the Drama Desk Awards. He says for years performance categories were non-gendered, but more men than women were taking home honors, so they switched to gendered categories. But this year, they switched back. It became evident to us that there were a number of performances by non-binary performers who were very likely going to be in the mix when the nominations came out. And it's not our business to be telling actors who they are. We're not in the business of defining them. Change is incremental. It's not going to necessarily happen immediately for everyone. Theater's returning and we're finding our footing again and people are choosing to operate how they operate. Jay Harrison G stars in Some Like It Hot as a male jazz bass player named Jerry, who when hiding from the mob dresses as a woman named Daphne and discovers they really like it. I don't have the word for what I feel. I just feel more like myself than I have in all my life. G is up for Best Actor in a Musical. And you could have knocked me over with a feather. It's fun to have the opportunity to show the humanity of Jerry Daphne, the fullness of an experience. Just removing the labels, the limits, the filters that were always placed on it. Now, Justin David Sullivan says labels are changing. We're starting to see a shift in, in what kind of stories are being told and making sure that, you know, these characters exist. Because just like in real life, <laughs> we as people exist. For NPR News, I'm Jeff London in New York. This is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate. At Progressive.com, not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. From DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. From Linda Mood Bell Learning Centers, instruction for students to catch up or get ahead. 
live online or in-person summer programs for reading, comprehension, and math. lindamoodbell.com slash NPR. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It is 81 degrees in Boston, as all things considered. Continues at 5 o'clock. The U.S. drought monitor indicates abnormally dry conditions from the South Shore to New Bedford, Cape Cod, and the islands. Most of the Berkshires have similar conditions. The drought monitor reports no part of the state is in a drought. Last year, the entire state reached drought status by late summer. WBUR supporters include Boston Ballet's The Sleeping Beauty, on stage now through June 4th at the Citizens Bank Opera House. Tickets at bostonballet.org. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The DACA program protects undocumented immigrants who came to the U.S. as children. A federal court is now considering whether DACA is legal. My husband and I just purchased a house, and so we would really like to continue, you know, our journey in what we know as our home country. Like, this is where we've been raised. It's Thursday, June 1st. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody in Fort Lisa Mullins. Coming up, you'll hear about Republican Speaker Kevin McCarthy celebrating the House passage of the debt ceiling bill. Is it everything I wanted? No. But sitting with one House, with a Democratic Senate, I think we did pretty dang good for the American public. Also, you'll get a WBUR report on a lawsuit filed against Worcester and the police department by people who say police assaulted them during racial justice protests in 2020. It's 5.01. Next, this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Now that the House has passed a bill to suspend the debt ceiling, it's the Senate's turn to weigh in on the measure. NPR's Vincent Acovino has more. As the debt ceiling bill approaches an expected vote in the Senate, lawmakers on both sides of the aisle are voicing their criticisms of the bill and the ways they'd like to amend it. Several lawmakers, like Republican Lindsey Graham, have voiced concerns over how the deal would impact funding for U.S. support of Ukraine in its war with Russia. We're not going to leave town uh, creating a question mark about our commitment to defeat Putin. Meanwhile, Democrat Tim Kaine has introduced an amendment to strip approval of a controversial pipeline project backed by fellow Democrat Joe Manchin. Senate leaders have indicated they'd like to work through these amendments and move forward with a vote as swiftly as possible. Vincent Acovino, NPR News. Vice President Kamala Harris says federal agencies are looking at racial discrimination in terms of appraising home values. Proposing a rule intended to ensure the automated formulas used to price housing are fair, Harris today said low appraisals too often create an unequal playing field for minority home buyers. Black and Latino people often pay more for their mortgage, receive less when they sell, and are less able to get access to home equity lines of credit. A year ago, the administration laid out a plan to stop appraisers from systematically undervaluing the homes of black people and other underrepresented groups. The state of Texas is taking over the public school system in Houston, replacing the superintendent and elected school board members. 
As Houston Public Media's Dominic Anthony Walsh reports, the move comes in response to schools that have long struggled to meet state standards. The new Houston Schools Superintendent, Mike Miles, is known for controversial reforms in the Dallas school system, like performance-based pay for teachers, implemented when he was superintendent of that district. Houston Teachers Union President Jackie Anderson says Texas schools are being held to strict standards without adequate funding and without a strong social safety net for low-income students. I don't care what kind of plans you have, what kind of curriculum you have. If students are hungry and their basic needs are not met, they're not going to be able to learn. The Texas legislature came close to increasing public school funding this year, but the effort fell through as state lawmakers fought over subsidies for private school tuition, also known as school vouchers. I'm Dominic Anthony Walsh in Houston. A gray wave is putting unprecedented demand on a number of key industries with no sign retirements, which began during the coronavirus pandemic, or showing any signs of easing. Since 2019, the proportion of retirees in the U.S. population has risen from 18 to 20 percent. That equates to about three and a half million fewer workers. Meanwhile, nearly a quarter of the workforce is now over the age of 55. On Wall Street today, the Dow is up 153 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is campaigning across New Hampshire today and is promising to send President Biden back to Delaware. WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports it's his first visit to the state since officially announcing his campaign for the Republican presidential nomination. DeSantis is hoping to use his conservative record as Florida governor to catapult him into the White House. At campaign events today in Laconia, Rochester, Salem, and Manchester, he's touting tax cuts, parental rights, gun rights, and shutting down the southern border. He's also vowing to end what he calls woke ideology, from the classroom to the boardroom. We made Florida the place where woke goes to die, and we will ensure as president that woke ideology ends up in the dustbin of history where it belongs. DeSantis didn't mention by name former President Donald Trump, who's leading in early polling some eight months ahead of the New Hampshire primary. But DeSantis says it's time for Republicans to dispense with the culture of losing. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. A lawyer accused of sexually assaulting four women in Charlestown more than a decade ago has waived extradition from New Jersey. 35-year-old Matthew Nilo appeared in a New Jersey courtroom today on fugitive from justice warrants. The former North End resident was arrested on Tuesday. It is not clear when he will be brought back to Massachusetts. Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren and a bipartisan group of senators are proposing a bill that would claw back compensation from executives of big banks that fail. The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation would be required to recover all or part of the money paid to the executives in the three years before their financial institutions were forced to cease business. In sports, it looks like head coach Joe Mazzola will keep his job despite the Boston Celtics' loss to the Miami Heat in the Eastern Conference Finals. Celtics president of basketball operations Brad Stevens today expressed support for the 34-year-old coach going into next season. He's a terrific leader. Um, He'll only get better at anything that, you know, he can learn from this year because he's constantly trying to learn and um, and he's accountable. Mazzola was the target of some harsh criticism for some of his decisions throughout the regular season and the playoffs. In the forecast, lows dropping to the mid-60s tonight. Tomorrow, a chance of some showers and thunderstorms. Highs in the 80s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Indeed a hiring platform designed to streamline how businesses can attract, interview, and hire candidates. 
More at Indeed.com slash NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. We begin this hour in Houston, where a federal judge heard arguments again today about the future of DACA. The Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program gives temporary legal protection to immigrants who were brought to the country as children, including 30-year-old Susana Lujano and her husband. She spoke to Houston Public Media outside the courtroom. We've been in Houston for almost 30 years, so it just seems a little bit strange that we have to fight so hard for just like the most basic of our rights, which is to live without fear of being pulled away from our homes and our families and to be able to work. We have a one-year-old. We want to provide for him. We want to be able to just live in peace, really. Texas leads a group of states challenging the Obama-era policy, which they argue is illegal. That's left Lujano and nearly 600,000 other DACA recipients in limbo as the case plays out. For more, we turn now to NPR's Joel Rose, who covers immigration. And Joel, tell us what happened in the court today. Yeah, roughly three hours of oral argument before U.S. District Judge Andrew Hainan. The judge already knows this case well. It has been going on since 2018. Hainan has ruled once before that DACA is unlawful. That was nearly two years ago. The Biden administration appealed that ruling to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which mostly agreed with the judge's ruling, but sent the case back to him for more proceedings uh, about a federal regulation that was published last year, which was supposed to put DACA on firmer legal footing. And that's largely what the lawyers were arguing about today. OK, I mean, this begs the question if Judge Hayden has already found DACA unlawful once before. Is there any reason to think that he'll find a different conclusion this time? Well, DACA's defenders hope so. We heard arguments from the Justice Department. They argue that DACA is legal because it falls within the tradition of prosecutorial discretion. We also heard from immigrant advocates who say Texas and the other states that are challenging DACA should not have standing in this case at all because they cannot prove any direct harms from DACA. The states that are challenging the program disagree with that. They say there is nothing new here that should change Judge Hainan's mind. They argue DACA is still an illegal overreach by the executive branch and that the judge should rule against the program again. And what about the people at the heart of this? Where does this leave people with DACA protection? In limbo, like you said at the top. I mean, basically, DACA is frozen in place. It's not accepting new applications. There are just under 600,000 people who currently have DACA, many of them in their 30s and early 40s. They can continue to renew their status for now, and that protects them from deportation. It allows them to work legally. It's helped many of them go to college and grad school, to buy homes, to start businesses. All of that is in jeopardy if DACA is terminated. And I want to say also that there are hundreds of thousands of younger immigrants who don't have access to DACA at all because they were too young to qualify before the program was tied up in court, and now it is just not an option for them. Joel, when will we know more about the future of DACA? Well, Judge Hainan says he'll consider all the arguments and issue his ruling soon, though he gave no specific timeline about that. Further appeals are likely. I mean, this case is is probably headed up to the Supreme Court, which has heard DACA cases before. Remember, the Trump administration tried to end the program, and the Supreme Court blocked that from happening. In a 5-4 to decision, they found the Trump administration did not go about ending DACA the right way. But this is a different case. It's also a different Supreme Court that may ultimately have the final word. That was NPR's Joel Rose. Joel, thank you. Thanks for having me. 
the great debt ceiling battle of 2023 may be wrapping up. The House has okayed a bill, and now the Senate is considering it. But this isn't the first debt ceiling fight that we have seen, or even the second. I mean, let's go back 70 years to the very first one, and you will find that it was strikingly similar to this one, with some key differences, as NPR's Stacey Vanek-Smith reports. The year was 1953. World War II was over. The economy was thriving. The song Vaya con Dios was topping the charts. Vaya con Dios, And President Dwight D. Eisenhower was talking about the debt ceiling. We have, first of all, faced the tough facts of the government debt. The last 23 years have seen this debt climb by $258 billion. It was the first debt ceiling fight. As a famous catcher once said, it's deja vu all over again. Kenneth Garbade is an economist and historian. The debt ceiling had been in place for years, but it didn't really cause any trouble until 1953. At the time, it stood at $275 billion. But with expenses from the Korean War, Republican President Eisenhower told Congress he needed a $15 billion ceiling bump. The request came before Congress on July 30, 1953, one day before Congress went on break. The House agreed immediately, but there was a hawkish group of senators who felt like spending had gotten out of control during the New Deal and World War II. And it was time to get back to a leaner government. They rejected the debt ceiling request. So Eisenhower and the administration were basically on their own after that. And they began to take some measures. Some extraordinary measures. The country had roughly $3 billion left before it hit the ceiling. And $3 billion was less than the government spent most months, which meant it was time for a budgetary crash diet. President Eisenhower directed all federal agencies to begin immediately to take every possible step to reduce expenditures. Of course, you can't really have a debt ceiling fight without public grandstanding. In an op-ed in the New York Times, Democratic Senator Harry Byrd wrote, quote, I would regard it as a great mistake to increase the debt limit at this time. President Eisenhower struck back a few weeks later, basically saying, hey, this isn't my fault. This money was committed way before I got into office. The weight of obligations made two and three years ago has forced upon us, as you know, the possibility of our having to raise the debt limit later this year. For one thing is a certainty. Bills already contracted by the government must be paid the day they become due. AKA we cannot default. But clever words don't pay bills, and things were getting tight. So the government started hunting between the couch cushions for any money it could find. And it found some in government gold vaults. Joseph Thorndike is an historian and director of the Tax History Project at Tax Analysts. They had to sell gold. They had some like bars lying around. Right. <laughs> and so they sold, I think, $500 million of that gold, which bought them time. Congress came back after its winter break. And by then, says Thorndike, everyone kind of agreed it was time to throw Eisenhower a bone. Congress approved a $6 billion debt ceiling increase. It was less than half of the $15 billion Eisenhower asked for, but it was enough to keep the lights on. The first debt ceiling crisis was resolved. But the debt ceiling drama had just begun. 
And the Chicago Daily Tribune, which is a very conservative paper at that time, says the lesson is clear. The way to get government expenditures down is to deny the administration authority to increase the debt. So, you know, they felt empowered by this experience. This year marks the 70th anniversary of the first debt ceiling fight. And the dozens of debt ceiling fights since then have all sounded pretty much the same. With a key difference, says economist and historian Kenneth Garbade. Oh, oh, it's gotten much worse. Garbade says every fight seems to get nastier, an inch closer and closer to the real threat of default. And the debt ceiling is a particularly bad fight to escalate, he says. I wish they'd find some place to have an argument that if it wasn't resolved, wasn't equivalent to detonating a hydrogen bomb in the economy. Congress is set to vote Wednesday on whether to approve the debt ceiling deal. And if it passes, we can finally say via con Dios to the debt ceiling drama. At least for now. Stacey Vanek-Smith, NPR News. The NBA Finals tips off tonight with the Miami Heat in Denver to play the Nuggets. It's the first time the Nuggets have made the finals in their 47 years in the NBA. From Colorado Public Radio, Tony Gorman reports on Denver fans' excitement and fear of heartbreak. Chopper Sports Grill in Metro Denver is named for longtime Nuggets trainer Robert Chopper Travellini, the bar's late owner. Randy Davis is here having lunch with friends He's happy the team finally got past the Los Angeles Lakers in the playoffs. The Lakers have been our nemesis pretty much the entire uh, 50 years I've been watching those guys. So we always get to that point and they take us out. So very sweet that we swept them and we got rid of them. Davis has rooted for the team since they played as the Denver Rockets in the old American Basketball Association. Since joining the NBA in 1976, they've reached the conference finals three times and fell to the Lakers each time before this season. Davis's emotions are high, but he's trying to keep them in check. It's always that cusp of right there, but then some little fluke thing happens. Denver's NFL and National Hockey League teams have won three national titles each, and even their lacrosse team is defending their national title this weekend. Nuggets fan Ryan LaPando. I think Denver's got more talent than anyone that's left, and they're not getting the respect that they should. Let's get Let's get so to national media, forget y'all. Our Denver Nuggets are bringing home the championship. You don't have to give us credit. They're going to earn the credit, right? That's Denver Mayor Michael Hancock renaming a new street downtown on Wednesday, Denver Nuggets Way. Susan Gallo thought former Nuggets All-Stars like Carmelo Anthony and Chauncey Billups would get them to this point in the past. Now she's more than confident the team will win with new stars like Nikola Jokic, Jamal Murray, and Michael Porter Jr. We've had some tough times in between, but with Jokic and Murray and MPJ, um, we've got a really solid team and hopefully those four wins will come easily and we will be uh, celebrating in this park in a few weeks. After tonight's game, the Heat and Nuggets will play again in Denver Sunday. The series then moves to Miami Wednesday. We got four more to go, but love this group. Let's go Nugget Nation. For NPR News, I'm Tony Gorman in Denver. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. 
Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 518, and coming up in about 15 minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, the U.S. Supreme Court has handed a victory to business interests in a labor dispute. The court ruled against unionized drivers who walked off the job leaving their trucks loaded with wet concrete. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. The Babson MBA helps you become a professional who takes action, leads with confidence, and tackles complex global challenges. Acquire the highly sought-after entrepreneurial mindset with a Babson MBA. Ranked number one in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report. Visit babson.edu MBA. On Wall Street today, the Dow gained just under half a percent. The S&P was up about 1%. The Nasdaq closed the day up just under 1.3%. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Comcast Business, providing businesses with cyber threat security designed to keep devices protected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. This is day one of meteorological summer. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyes says summer-like temperatures are popping up in some areas. Hottest north and west of Boston, around 90, 80 at the coast, courtesy of a sea breeze, 70s on the Cape. Expect very similar temperatures tomorrow and a threat for showers and thunderstorms. Not everyone will see a storm, but it's a day to stay alert. Some downpours and rumbles start popping by early afternoon and last into the evening. Pockets of rain and showers will linger this weekend, and it will be a noticeable change in temperatures. Highs only in the 50s and a gusty northeast wind. It's 83 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. Time now for some science news from our friends at NPR's Shortwave podcast. Emily Kwong and Regina Barber are the hosts, and they're here now for our science roundup. Hey to both of you. Hey, Elsa. Elsa, hi. So what have you got for us this week? Uh, we've picked out three biomedical stories for you. Mm. Yeah. One is about a new vaccine to protect adults against respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV. Uh, one is about a measles sticker vaccine. Sticker? <laughs> yeah. Sticker. And finally, one is about technology that's letting a paralyzed man walk again. Oh, my God. Where do we even begin? Emily, what are we going to start with? Let's start with RSV. Um, You know, for most people, it feels like the common cold, Elsa, but uh-huh. it can make infants and older people really sick. Complications from RSV like pneumonia and bronchiolitis is the number one cause for hospitalizations in infants. And for adults 65 and older, the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, estimate that RSV leads to tens of thousands of hospitalizations every year. And between 6,000 and 10,000 deaths. Wow. wow, I had no idea that RSV could be that serious for certain populations. Mm-hmm. Tell me more about this new vaccine. Yeah, so RSV researchers have been working for decades on a vaccine, and now there are two on the horizon for older adults. So the first, made by GSK, got FDA approval last month, and the second, made by Pfizer, was approved this week. 
In clinical trials, both appear to significantly reduce RSV-associated lower respiratory tract disease in older adults. And this comes, by the way, on the heels of an RSV vaccine for infants getting FDA approval, too. Right. And why have these RSV vaccines taken so long to develop if this has been around for a while, this this virus? This is such a good question. You know, it just took time to get the science right for the vaccine to be safe and effective. The big breakthrough came from a group of NIH scientists who mapped the hidden structure of surface proteins. That's what allows the virus to infect human cells. Over a decade ago, this team found a way to hack the virus, preventing those surface proteins from transforming in a way that makes them a lock and key fit for our cells. Here's lead researcher Barney Graham, who is now based at Morehouse School of Medicine. It's like the transformer toys. If what you want is a car and what you have is a robot, Uh, you have to block the car. Okay, I love this transformer analogy. So let me make sure I get it. Mm -hmm. They need to catch this virus protein before it morphs into its most destructive phase and infects you. It is like a superhero stakes uh, situation. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, something like that. Um, Barney, by the way, he stands to earn capped royalties on the sale of the RSV vaccines using this design. Okay, so now that the FDA has approved these vaccines... When will they actually become available? This is the key question. So for the vaccine to be pushed to the marketplace, the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, or ACIP, has to recommend it for older adults. They are meeting on June 21st through 23rd to make that decision. So there's a regulatory hurdle, but there's also an uptake hurdle. People might not know about the vaccine or not want to get it or not know where to get it. Vaccination just takes buy-in from family doctors and internists, and some healthcare providers may not think that RSV is a big deal for adults and not advise their patients to get vaccinated. And if the CDC's advisory committee doesn't recommend the RSV vaccine in a few weeks, insurance won't cover it, so people will have to pay out of pocket. Okay. Now for our second story, we're going to stay on the topic of vaccines. I want to get to this sticker vaccine. This Mm -hmm. is for the measles? Yeah. So this is a clinical trial for the vaccine to protect against measles and rubella. Both are characterized by fevers and red rashes. Measles in particular can be really serious. In 2021, it killed more than 100,000 people worldwide, mostly kids under five. Yeah. So health correspondent Fran Kritz wrote about this vaccine for goats and soda, NPR's global health and development blog. Mm -hmm. And she said that the thing that has researchers excited isn't the vaccine itself. The vaccine has been around for decades. What researchers are excited about is the new way the vaccine is delivered, which has been in works for more than two decades. And let me guess, it's getting delivered by a sticker? Truly, a sticker. Yeah. (laughs) You just slap it on. Yeah, it's just a small, like, white adhesive patch about the size of a quarter. Wow. And within a few minutes of the patch being gently pressed onto the patient's wrist, the vaccine dose is delivered. So it doesn't hurt? It is practically pain-free. One of the researchers actually compared it to the feeling of Velcro on your skin. Cool. And it's hopefully a huge step towards wider vaccine accessibility since it's not a needle. And it's a better option for areas where there's few health facilities and clean water. Yeah, this this uptake question, which we heard about in the earlier story, it's a real issue mm-hmm. with vaccines. Um, the patch also doesn't need to be refrigerated, which many vaccines usually do. So there's more accessibility there, too. And what about the effectiveness here? Like this patch that feels like Velcro. It's a sticker. Mm -hmm. It's not a shot. Is it as effective as a shot? Yeah, it is. It produced the same sort of immune response. 
Uh, now, this was a small trial, just a couple hundred babies, toddlers, and some adults. So this still needs to be tested on a much larger scale and then get authorization from countries' regulatory agencies. So it could be another five to seven years before we see it being used, but it's a promising first step. Yeah, it's a big deal. Fascinating. Okay, so last up, Regina, you have a story about an intervention that could help people with paralysis walk again. Am I clear on this? I mean, it sounds like it's made for a movie. Yes, I love movies. Yes, yes. <laughs> Over a decade ago, Gert-Jan Oskum was paralyzed from a cycling accident. And that injury interrupted the communication between his brain and spinal cord. And recently, researchers have reconnected them so he can walk again. Wow. Okay, so how does this technology work? Yeah, so first they need to figure out what his brain signals look like when he's thinking about walking. And they interpret that with something called a brain-computer interface. And that's not new technology. That's been around for a while to, like, move cursors on a screen, to control small robots by just thinking. And in this case, a brain implant decodes Gertjan's thoughts. Then those thoughts are sent wirelessly to a wearable processor that looks like a backpack. And it detects his intentions to move and translates these brain signals into electric pulses. These pulses are sent to another implant that stimulates his spinal cord, allowing him to actually make those movements. And all this happens in, like, just split seconds? Yes. Wow. (laughs) Okay, so you've mentioned parts of this have been done before. So what is actually new here? Yeah, so what's new here is how they combine these two known technologies of reading the brain's thoughts and using them to stimulate the spinal cord. That's according to Marco Capogrosso, a spinal cord injury researcher at the University of Pittsburgh. He's not associated with the study, but he is very impressed on how real this walking looks. The patient could even go up and down ramps, navigate obstacles, go upstairs, Um, And in the past, patients have only been able to kind of have these choppy steps, and it was hard for them to move on anything that wasn't flat ground. This is incredible. But wait, this so far has just been tested on this one individual, right? Like, so how might this technology be rolled out more widely? So same answer as the sticker vaccine. (laughs) Marco says probably about five to seven years. Um, More research has to be done to see who else this can help, like level of injury, make sure it's safe, and it's pretty expensive right now. So cool. That is Regina Barber and Emily Kwong. They are the hosts of NPR science podcast Shortwave, where you can learn about new discoveries, everyday mysteries, and the science behind the headlines. Emily and Regina, thank you so much, as always. Thank you, also. Thank you, also. You're listening to All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. It's 529. And coming up in about 15 minutes, the Army's largest base by population gets a new name tomorrow. After more than a century as Fort Bragg, it becomes Fort Liberty. It's among nine bases dropping the names of Confederate leaders. That and much more ahead on All Things Considered. And start your Friday here on WBUR. Tomorrow morning, you'll hear about MCAS turning 25 as a growing number of districts in Massachusetts are opposed to the high stakes test and are trying a different approach. You're part of the WBUR community. That's why you're invited to our next virtual community advisory board meeting. It's Wednesday, June 7th from 4 to 6.30 p.m. Details at wbur.org slash openmeetings.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. Tens of thousands of young people spend time behind bars. We make mistakes, but we want to change, you know? Educators are helping them make that change with a new music program for juvenile detention. How young people are lifting their voices to tell stories of courage and resilience. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. President Biden delivered the commencement address at the U.S. Air Force Academy in Colorado today. In his remarks, he thanked graduates for choosing service over self. Resilience, creativity, endurance, commitment. These have been essential parts of your unique academy training. You're going to need those qualities as you continue your careers. Because the world you're graduating into is not only changing rapidly, the pace of change is accelerating as well. Biden warned the graduating class about the global challenges they face, including the Russian invasion of Ukraine and America's increasing rivalry with China. He also cited the threat of climate change and the growing use of artificial intelligence. The United States and Guatemala are announcing a pilot program to facilitate entry to the U.S. by some Guatemalan citizens. Maria Martin reports it will make family reunifications easier and allow access to work visas. The announcement of the six-month pilot program comes in the wake of last week's phone call between Vice President Kamala Harris and Guatemala's President Alejandro Chamarte to, quote, manage the historic irregular migration challenge impacting both countries. This is part of the administration's strategy to expand the number of legal paths to the U.S. while making it harder for migrants to claim asylum at the U.S. border. People can start making appointments online on June 12th as the U.S. and Guatemala, quote, deepen cooperation on border security, and work to address the root causes of irregular migration. For NPR News, I'm Maria Martin. Stocks traded higher today on Wall Street. The Dow was up 153 points. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Protesters and bystanders who say they were assaulted by Worcester police during racial justice demonstrations in June 2020 are suing the city and the police department. The group's lawsuit comes as the Department of Justice is investigating whether Worcester police have a pattern of using excessive force and discriminatory policing. WBUR's Ali Jarmanning has more. The lawsuit claims that Worcester police retaliated against bystanders who were using their phones to record police shooting tear gas and so-called less-than-lethal rounds at crowds, and that police then tried to cover up alleged wrongdoing by writing false reports. Attorney Hector Pinheiro says none of the officers involved in the arrests were ever disciplined. The police department is unwilling to hold anybody accountable from the bottom to the top. One of the reasons for this lawsuit is to change that, to put the microscope on what happened. The lawsuit also says that Worcester police did not have a policy on how to de-escalate during protests and when to use force. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Allie Jarmani. Worcester police declined to comment on the lawsuit. City officials did not yet respond. 
Gun safety advocates are urging state lawmakers to pass legislation to eliminate illegal ghost guns and to establish new safety training mandates. Lynn Grilly heads the Massachusetts chapter of Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense. Grilly says despite the state's strong gun safety laws, the state is not immune from gun violence. We have had many shootings in certain cities that go um, unnoticed sometimes, but we are hopeful that um, we will continue to advocate for strong gun safety measures. Grilly says her group is using National Gun Violence Awareness Day to highlight the need for more protections. Members of Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare are suing the health insurer and its parent company over a data breach. The class action lawsuit filed in federal court alleges that Harvard Pilgrim failed to secure the personal information of members. Harvard Pilgrim's parent company acknowledged that data was taken from its system in a ransomware attack this past March. It's 534. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University Student Employment, connecting you to smart, reliable students for part-time work. Free job listings at bu.edu seo. It's 83 degrees in Boston. Tomorrow, a chance of some showers and thunderstorms. Highs ranging from the 80s to up around 90. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From BritBox, with Season 2 of The Tower, starring Gemma Whalen. This and more police dramas, including Line of Duty and The Responder, starring Martin Freeman. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. In a moment, we'll hear from the Supreme Court in an 8-to-1 decision today. They sided with business interests over unions, but first to the Capitol. Roughly six months after Kevin McCarthy fought through GOP opposition to be elected Speaker of the House, he negotiated a bipartisan bill with President Biden to lift the debt ceiling. And the compromise passed overwhelmingly with more than 300 votes. This is one of the best nights I've ever been here. I thought it would be hard. I thought it'd be almost impossible just to get to 218. NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh joins us now to talk about this moment for the speaker. Hey there. Hey, Wada. So Deirdre, how did McCarthy do it? Well, a key factor goes back to the deal McCarthy cut with conservatives in January. He agreed to their demand that he would not allow a vote on any clean bill to raise the debt ceiling. It had to include spending cuts. McCarthy pushed this this position consistently, (laughs) starting with his meeting with the president back in February. Previous deals on the debt ceiling during divided government have included spending reforms, and that's something that McCarthy actually noted the night he was elected speaker. The president continued to demand no strings attached to any bill to avoid a default, but McCarthy kept working with his members to put together a plan that appealed to all different factions of his conference. The president kept saying, show us your plan, and then the speaker actually came up with one and it was able to pass the House. That forced talks with President Biden. Okay, Deirdre, I know you cover Congress, but do you think that the White House misjudged how Kevin McCarthy was handling the debt ceiling? 
I do, because officials at the White House didn't believe that McCarthy could keep his members together and actually pass a Republican bill. I think a lot of them believe the speaker would be forced to accept a clean bill. Louisiana Republican Garrett Graves, he was one of the two Republican negotiators. He talked about this with reporters before last night's vote. No question, White House miscalculated on this one. Uh, They misjudged the speaker. He is hands down the best strategist I've ever worked with. The other issue is that McCarthy and President Biden didn't really have much of a relationship. Another Republican negotiator, Congressman Patrick McHenry, said that relationship got better with the talks, but he joked about something that McCarthy and Biden do have in common. Right, but you've got two Irish guys that don't drink. McHenry said they do swear share a sweet tooth, though. <laughs> okay. So, Deirdre, what about Democrats? How did they think the White House handled these talks? Some thought the president could have been more publicly, aggressively out there pushing back against the speaker. McCarthy was just on television constantly talking to reporters, getting his message out. In these types of negotiations, it often comes down to personal relationships, too. One Democrat I talked to before the deal was announced, Dean Phillips of Minnesota, said he thought the talk should have started earlier. I happen to believe that building relationships and having conversation should begin as early as humanly possible. And this is an institution that's predicated on negotiation. Some other Democrats complain that this fight over the debt ceiling could have been avoided entirely. Democrats did have the chance to add a provision to lift the debt limit to the large spending bill they passed when they controlled both chambers of Congress and the White House in December. And briefly, Deirdre, for McCarthy, how is his relationship with conservatives? Many of them voted against this deal. Are they will they try to oust him? Right now, no one is pushing to remove the speaker, but under House rules, it only takes one member to force a vote. But really, there's no one who could get the votes right now in the Republican conference to replace him. Overall, I think this fight actually boosted McCarthy's political capital Mm -hmm. among House Republicans. NPR's Deirdre Walsh, thanks. Thanks, Juana. The Supreme Court today handed a victory to business interests in a labor dispute. By an eight-to-one vote, the court ruled against unionized drivers who walked off the job, leaving their trucks loaded with wet concrete. But NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg says there's more to this story. She joins us now. Hey, Nina. Hey there. Okay, so eight-to-one seems pretty decisive, but tell us why people on the labor side are actually kind of relieved by this ruling. This has been a a pretty anti-labor court with three decisions against organized labor in the last five years, one of which actually reversed a 40-year-old precedent. So labor was scared of this case. Mm -hmm. It had precedent on its side dating back uh, nearly 70 years, but the unions were scared that the Supreme Court's conservative supermajority would overturn long-established protections for unions and their ability to time their strikes. In the end, that didn't happen. It did not happen. Okay, so what kind of protections are we talking about? This was a case about a strike by the Teamsters Union against Glacier Northwest, which is a cement company in Washington state. After its contract had expired and negotiations broke down, the union orchestrated a walkout to take place after its drivers had loaded a large amount of wet concrete into Glacier's delivery trucks. 
The company sued the union in state court, claiming that by abandoning the loaded trucks, the union had endangered the company's equipment. Wet concrete, it explained, hardens easily, and the company had to initiate emergency maneuvers to offload the concrete before it destroyed the trucks. Mm -hmm. But the Washington Supreme Court ruled that Glacier's complaint should have been filed with the National Labor Relations Board. And for nearly 70 years, the Supreme Court has said that federal law gives the board authority to decide labor disputes, not the states or the state courts, as long as the conduct is even arguably protected or prohibited under the federal labor law. And that's the rule that the business community was gunning for and hoping, but ultimately failing, to eliminate. Okay, so they didn't get their way, but the company did sort of win here, right? Yes, it did. But this was a case of winning a relatively minor battle but losing the war. Ah. At least at least for now, the court did not overturn or otherwise disturb its longstanding rule, giving the NLRB broad authority in labor disputes and leaving unions free to time when they'll strike. So that was a big win for labor. But at the same time, the court majority decided the case in favor of the company in a very fast specific way, and the court said the union's conduct in this particular case posed a serious and intentional risk of harm to the company's trucks and that, therefore, the case should not have been dismissed by the state Supreme Court. And how did this eight-to-one vote break down exactly? It was a conservative-liberal coalition, believe it or not, <laughs> with Justice Amy Coney Barrett writing the opinion and the court's three most conservative justices, Alito, Gorsuch, and Thomas, writing separately. They were clearly frustrated that the court didn't go further and reverse a lot of the existing protections for strikers' rights. In fact, Alito virtually invited Glacier or other business interests to come back and try again. <laughs> and what about the lone dissenter here? Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson said that in her view, the union acted lawfully in timing its strike to put maximum pressure on the employer. And she pointed out that Glacier could have either locked out the the union members or had on standby some non-union members because they were the company was on formal notice that a strike was possible at any time. That is NPR's Nina Totenberg. Thank you, Nina. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. After more than a century as Fort Bragg, on Friday, the Army's largest base by population officially becomes Fort Liberty. And as the old name goes, base officials are already working to bind the installation's new name to its storied history. Jay Price of member station WUNC reports. And there's a lot of that history. So much, in fact, there are two military museums on the city-sized base and another next door in Fayetteville. Bragg troops have played key roles in every major U.S. conflict, beginning with World War I. And now, as home to the 82nd Airborne Division, the Special Forces School, and the commands over Army Airborne and Special Operations Units, it's so crucial to national security, the base is often called the center of the military universe. 
For me, I've been in Europe, been at been at Fort Polk. I've been in a lot of units. Retired Command Sergeant Major Don Nock was stationed all over the world in his 27 years in the Army. But something about the soldiers here on Fort Bragg. The esprit de corps and the camaraderie is different. Always has been. Nock is now a civilian employee at Bragg and heads a task force handling the nuts and bolts of the name change. He says Bragg leaders want to underline the history behind that confident culture. So one of his biggest tasks has been overseeing the creation of what's expected to be a permanent tradition. Nightly marches along a trail flanked by dozens of markers bearing short lessons about Bragg history. I think it will give soldiers an understanding and family members and veterans that, hey, liberty, it's a change in our history and we always change. It is a new beginning. Sunset Liberty marches are scheduled to happen 365 nights a year, regardless of weather. They'll honor service members past and present. And I think this will help concrete or put it in place that, hey, we are liberty. And this is to represent that we're not going to forget our history. And we're going to talk about all of our history and we're going to walk our history every day. Bragg is among nine army bases that are dropping the names of Confederate leaders. The renaming, dictated by Congress, comes after a three-year process. There were thousands of people we could have named, but how do you pick one of them? The commander of the Bragg-based 18th Airborne Corps will lead the first march, but then regular marches begin, and those leading the way won't all be famous or senior leaders. The first two, in fact, didn't even know they were going to be a part of history. I just learned from my wife, like, the fact that Fort Bragg is changing his name. Air Force Staff Sergeant Bobby McIntosh and his wife Judith, an Army specialist, signed up after her unit put around an email on the march seeking volunteers. He said both came from families that can trace military service back several generations, his to the Civil War, and it was just part of what they view as duty. It's cool that we get to do this and we can share our part of it. It's like that's not why we're doing it. The other eight bases will be renamed for people. Bragg leaders, though, said so many extraordinary soldiers were associated with the place, it seemed impossible to pick one. So they chose an ideal which has several ties to the base and surrounding area. The very first sign on the march underlines one of those ties, the Liberty Resolves. Well, this is the precursor to the Declaration of Independence. Linda Carnes McNaughton is an archaeologist and cultural resources expert with the base. These were people here who declared themselves free of British control. So they decided to create this document at Liberty Point in Cumberland County. And uh, two years later, the War of Independence takes place. These are people with their mindset to be America. That's the first history sign on the route. The last one, at least for now, notes the name change to Liberty. For NPR News, I'm Jay Price. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help animal welfare organizations throughout the Northeast. OceanStateJobLot.com. Coming up in about 20 minutes, Tupperware is part of American lore, and now the company known for storage containers and parties faces financial peril. That and more ahead on All Things Considered. With Thursday winding down, it's almost the weekend. This weekend, some of your listening options are changing here on 90.9 WBUR. For example, you'll get a second chance to hear Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me on Sunday mornings, and you can catch the Moth Radio Hour on Saturday evenings. You can check the details of your new weekend soundtrack at WBUR. 
WBUR.org schedule. WBUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, partnering with Mass Audubon to protect climate-resilient landscapes. MathWorks.com slash Mass Audubon. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with NPR News, reminding you that your public radio station is a service, and the people who use that service are the largest single source of support for that service. Your old car can play a role It can help pay for the producers, editors, and audio engineers and others who create Morning Edition every day. Your old car can do that. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org slash cars. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. And we're going to hand things over now to NPR's Rachel Martin for another conversation from her series, Enlighten Me. I started watching this show a few weeks ago. It's called Somebody Somewhere on HBO. And then I raved about it to anyone who would listen. A lot of things struck me about this show. First and foremost, the fullness of the queer characters. Also, the authenticity of the dialogue. But even more than those things, the show stood out to me because of the way that it represents religion through this one character named Joel. He's the best friend in this story. The main character is a woman named Sam, who's played by Bridget Everett. Sam has moved back to her hometown in Kansas, and she ends up reconnecting with this guy she went to high school with, Joel. The two of them fill voids in each other's lives in this beautiful way. In one scene, Sam is helping Joel shop around for a new church, even though she herself is not religious in the slightest. Okay, I got my little notebook. I'll write down all the pros and cons. We can just pop in, and if you're not feeling it, we'll just check out the next one. You want to start over here? Yeah. Let's do Lutheran, Presbyterian, Catch Methodist, swing around to Baptist, and then we can go to the next block. Let's start and build one at a time. Okay. Jeff Hiller plays Joel in the show. I talked to him about his big break. Also, growing up gay and Christian in Texas and foregoing life as a pastor for a life of performing. This is really why I wanted to talk to you, because I saw this scene and I was like, wait, what? I kept waiting for like the dig, right? Like the cutting joke that was going to somehow eviscerate this religious person or this character, because that's what we're, we're sort of used to seeing. And it wasn't that at all. No. And in fact, the only jokes really come at the expense of Sam just having no idea what (laughs) <laughs> what churches do or, or right, right. she she's points at this, this beautiful place? stained glass thing of of Jesus holding a lamb and she's like who's that guy holding the poodle <laughs> and that guy holding the tiny poodle oh my god you've never been to a church have you don't worry about that. it's just treated so gently in the show like it's not treated with derision um yeah. it's just a part of who he is as a fully realized human being Exactly. Because I know so many queer folks who are members of faith communities. And in fact, that's where they found their people, their their mm. family, their their found family. And I know so many churches who uh, where that are basically the only voice of social justice in their communities. Mm. They're, they're, that's where you go if you need food. That's where you go if you need help on your rent. You know, I think in pop culture, when you see church, you just think, oh, it's going to smush down the the gay people. (laughs) Right. And um, that's, it's so much more nuanced than that. When did you come out to your family? What was that like? I came out when I was to my parents 
after college because mm. I, I had come out to some some people in college, but I went to Texas Lutheran College, so it wasn't like <laughs> right. it wasn't like Berkeley. You know what I mean? It was, <laughs> uh, there was no one else that was out, so you would whisper it, and then somebody would be like, "I heard that this person is gay too." You know? Yeah. Uh, so uh, I told them after college because I was afraid that they would. I don't know. I don't know what I was afraid of. Like, it, it didn't make any sense. My mom had been nothing but kind. Mm-hmm. And, of course, when I came out, they were like, yeah, we know. <laughs> I've, I've never told anybody who was like, really? Uh, <laughs> I am who I am. And uh, so, anyhow, it was totally fine. You were going to be a pastor. You. Yeah. This was, you felt to use the terminology, you you really felt called to that? Oh my gosh, we used that terminology like crazy. <laughs> we love talking about being called. <laughs> it's so funny. I, I I think about that now and it's like it's such um it's such a word that you use to sort of hide ambition. <laughs> totally. <laughs> you know I mean? Right, 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 right. It's not me. I mean I could just do anything. I was called. What am I supposed to exactly. do? Right. You know, I'm wrestling with it. I'm wrestling with the call. <laughs> How are you? How are you? Um Yes, I I did feel called though. Like that's the other thing is that I was being sincere. I wasn't just using language. I I really felt called. Yeah. But I mean, in retrospect, it's like I love to perform and I love to entertain, and mm. that was something you you know you knew you had at least one hour every week. <laughs> Admittedly, not the not the best hour Sunday at ten a.m. But still, <laughs> there was an audience. They showed up. Built an audience. Some right. you know, if it's a big enough church, you could get two shows an eight and a, a ten thirty. Um, but. I really, I loved doing a sermon and, and things like that. And I think if I hadn't come out or, you know, if I weren't gay, I would be a pastor right now. Uh, but really? at the time in the ELCA, which is my, my I, the Lutheran synod that I was a part of, they said you could be gay, but you couldn't have a partner. You had to be celibate. And I found that very... Uh, <laughs> rude. <laughs> right. This is the, it's it's a sin like everyone else's sin, and so you can't right. live in your sin. Exactly. Um, and that's that has since changed. Mm-hmm. But it, it that was what the rule was when I was graduating from college and contemplating going to seminary, and uh, and and also I just really, really, really wanted to perform. Yeah. You spent many years teaching people to do this craft, right? You were teaching acting and comedy to a whole bunch of people who are pretty famous at this point? Yeah. (laughs) Yes, yes. And it ate me up. I was very jealous of them. But yes, Abby Jacobson, Ilana Glazer, Kate McKinnon, Ellie Kemper, Darcy Carden, all of these people. It didn't matter that they were incredibly talented, you know, gorgeous and and smart and, uh, and... fun and kind, warm people. But yeah, I did. I got really jealous of them. <laughs> so is it fair to say that this role on Somebody Somewhere is your big break? Oh, my God. Absolutely. Yeah. Completely. I mean, undoubtedly. <laughs> <laughs> what other words can we say? <laughs> I mean, like, before this, I was playing waiters, you know. This is huge to actually have an interior life. And I mean, just have a name. <laughs> it's a big deal. Oh, <laughs> my career. Oh, like uh, attached to your role. Like you, yes. that you have an As identity. As opposed to like waiter or like maitre d. <laughs> that was, the, that was the scary thing. I had aged out of waiter into maitre d. <laughs> 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 
And I really thought, because I read this role and I was like, I'm a theology major. This this guy is, you know, he goes to church. He's he sings. He he plays the piano. He's he's you know warm and kind. And uh, I I know how to play this. I kind of felt like, oh, I think they wrote this role for me, but they didn't. They were like, no, we didn't. We didn't know who you were. <laughs> Jeff Hiller, it has been such a pleasure to talk with you. <laughs> Jeff stars in the show Somebody Somewhere on HBO along with Bridget Everett. Thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. This was fun. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. From Dickinson College, awarding the Rose Walters Prize for Global Environmental Activism to combat climate change and inspire future leaders. Learn more at dickinson.edu rwp. From Progressive Insurance, Progressive is looking for individuals in a variety of career fields who want to help build a culture of inclusiveness. More information, including application, at progressive.com careers. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. Good evening. I'm Sharon Brody. Coming up in just a few minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, you'll get another perspective on the debt ceiling bill in the Senate. That's as All Things Considered continues at 6 o'clock. R&B and neo-soul singer-songwriter Miranda Ray headlines our next Sound on Music Festival at City Space. That's Friday, June 23rd. For details and tickets, go to WBUR.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Museum of Science. There's always something new. Visit the latest traveling exhibit, Mazes and Brain Games, and prepare to be amazed. Tickets at MOS.org. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The debt ceiling bill is now in the hands of the U.S. Senate. Senator Jeff Merkley, an Oregon Democrat, says he won't vote for it. Everything in this was off the Republican wish list. This was not some of ours, some of yours. This was a hostage taking. It's Thursday, June 1st. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening. I'm Sharon Brody in for Lisa Mullins. Coming up, Tupperware is intertwined with American pop culture and merchandising. Now the company, known for storage containers and parties, is in financial trouble. Also, Georgia peaches will be elusive this year. Bad weather pretty much wiped out the crop. And Chilean musician Alex Sanvanter discusses his new disco-influenced album. At 6.30, it's Marketplace. It's 6.01. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Addressing graduates at the U.S. Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, Colorado today, President Joe Biden said no graduating class gets to choose the world into which they graduate. 
By noting in his address, the graduating class of 2023 faces global uncertainties as well as major responsibilities. Leadership. Yeah, leadership. Word often used. In the years ahead, your airmen and guardians are going to look to you for guidance and inspiration because the world's going to get more confusing. Biden said the U.S. does not seek conflict with China. Biden fell after tripping on stage, prompting concern, but the White House responded he was okay. At 80, the president is already the oldest in U.S. history and has been dogged by questions about his health and fitness to serve. Russia says its forces have repelled an incursion across the Russian border by Ukrainian fighters. Russian claim comes amid an uptick in border clashes in recent weeks. From Moscow, NPR's Charles Manzos more. According to a defense ministry spokesman, Russia's armed forces prevented several groups of what he called Ukrainian terrorist formations from crossing into the neighboring Belgorod region at the border town of Shebekina. The ministry's announcement came several hours after two paramilitary groups of anti-Kremlin Russians who claimed to fight on behalf of Ukraine announced they had launched raids across the border. Video shared online appeared to show evidence of shelling in Shebekina including a large residential building on fire. In a statement issued online, Belgorod's governor claimed the town was under endless Ukrainian rocket attack and that an evacuation of residents was underway. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. Hurricane season officially begins today. Forecasters expect an average season of 12 to 17 named storms across the Atlantic. Orlando Montoya of Georgia Public Broadcasting reports on a Georgia community where preparations include plans for storm shelter. The Federal Emergency Management Agency is giving the city of Tybee Island $2 million to construct a large concrete shelter. Plans call for a building 17 feet off the ground that can withstand Category 5 hurricane winds and fit 700 people. But project consultant Alan Robertson says it's only intended for first responders, city workers, and vulnerable residents such as those in nursing homes. This is not designed to keep people on the island. In the event of a hurricane, the protocols all remain in place. And when you're told to evacuate, everybody should evacuate. The shelter is expected to be completed in two years. For NPR News, I'm Orlando Montoya in Atlanta. The number of people filing first-time jobless claims rose slightly last week. First-time claims for unemployment benefits jumped by 2,000 to a seasonally adjusted 232,000 for the week ending May 27th. The more closely watched monthly job numbers for May are due out tomorrow. Stocks gain ground on Wall Street today. The Dow is up 153 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. A group is suing the city of Worcester and its police department. The people in the group say they were assaulted by officers during racial justice demonstrations. The lawsuit claims that three years ago, Worcester police retaliated against bystanders who were using their phones to record police, firing tear gas and so-called less-than-lethal rounds at crowds. Worcester police will not comment on the lawsuit. The city has not yet responded to requests for comment. Two new leaders of the MBTA are warning it might be a while before riders see improvements. WBUR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez reports on a forum today that focused on the transit system's troubles. Phil Ang took over as the T's general manager almost two months ago. He says he's dedicated to improving safety and reliability for riders. They are counting on us to deliver, and we are going to do that for them. The new chair of the MBTA's board of directors, Thomas Glynn, also spoke at the forum. Glynn says the board and other officials are dedicated to making the tea better, but it won't happen overnight. You know, I think people will see a different tea a year from now, but I don't know if they'll see a different tea in two months. The advisory board hopes to host another public forum in the coming months. 
For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. A national marijuana company is closing its Massachusetts dispensaries at the end of this month. TrueLeave says it plans to close its locations in Framingham, Worcester, and Northampton and close its Holyoke manufacturing facility. The company says it's going to focus on markets that it thinks have long-term potential. TrueLeave operates in 11 states. About a quarter of Massachusetts is abnormally dry, according to the U.S. Drought Monitor. That's 10 percentage points higher than at this time last week. The driest parts of the state are Berkshire County, the South Shore, Cape Cod, and the islands. About a month ago, half the state was considered to be abnormally dry. Tonight at Fenway, the Red Sox play the Reds. Lows will drop to the mid-60s tonight. Tomorrow, a chance of some showers and thunderstorms in the afternoon. As for temperatures north and west of Boston tomorrow, the high will be around 90. It'll be about 80 at the coast. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. All right, it's Thursday, June 1st. The federal government has until next Monday, June 5th, to raise the debt ceiling and avoid defaulting on its financial obligations. Now, the compromise bill to do that passed the narrowly divided House of Representatives yesterday by a less narrow vote of 314 in favor to 117 against. Now the bill heads to the Senate, where leaders of both parties support its swift passage. But not everyone is on board, on the right or on the left. In a statement, Democratic Senator Jeff Merkley of Oregon said, quote, I cannot in good conscience vote for this bill. We asked Senator Merkley to join us to explain. Welcome, Senator. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you. It's a pleasure to have you. So in that statement that you issued, your primary opposition to this bill, the way I understand it, is based on environmental concerns, specifically regarding a natural gas pipeline through Appalachian states and changes to an environmental protection law, right? Can you just tell me why these issues were red lines for you? Well, really, there are three big problems with the bill. And the first is that the way it was negotiated Mm -hmm. and conceding to the hostage-taking means there'll be hostage-taking on every other debt ceiling into the future. We have to end that cycle of this self-destructive activity. The second is that I've been hearing from my constituents about what they want us to do. And they are talking about, hey, we need help with affordable housing, mental health programs, stopping fentanyl, and restoring childcare. This bill will do a lot to undermine any federal programs that could possibly help with those four key things. And then the third, as you mentioned, this bill is a climate catastrophe. We keep greenlighting new fossil fuel projects while we are essentially already at the carbon cap, very close to it for 1.5 degrees. And America has burned most of that carbon. The rest of the world is looking at us uh, saying, hey, you're, you're preaching climate, but you're not walking the, the walk. Uh, you're continuing to be one of the biggest polluters in the world. I hear your concerns, but you know it's clear that neither side got everything they wanted out of this compromise. And the Biden administration has been arguing that this legislation still preserves a number of key climate or environmental priorities. Do you think that that is fair of them to say that? If you're talking compromise, everything in this was off the Republican wish list. This was not some of ours, some of yours. This was a hostage taking for doing damage to the environment and, uh, well, 
undermining in addition all of the key provisions of NEPA, the, the bedrock environmental law. In this, and this has been way underreported, our whole series of changes that do things like saying corporations can write their own environmental impact statement. That is the proverbial fox in the hen house. And there's like five of those provisions stuck into this bill. Even so, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, your Democratic leader in the Senate, is encouraging that the chamber pass this bill quickly without amendments that would stall the process. He says that time is a luxury that the Senate does not have if we want to prevent default. What is your response to Schumer's position there? The egregious pieces of this bill are not ones that can accommodate. Uh, Certainly, it is the case that normally we do all we can to help promote a Democratic president, and that's uh, Schumer's work. You know, he's helping uh, President Biden in this, and he was part of the negotiation. But listen, the key here is that from the very beginning, this was a failure of imagination. And by that, I mean you have the president envisioning this as either the Republicans drive this over the cliff, or I take a whole bunch of stuff off their agenda and help get it passed. Meanwhile, he had very powerful executive tools that he never put to work. He never pursued a Protect Our Credit Act that would end this cycle of of hostage taking. And so we are where we are now that I cannot in good conscience vote for this bill. Democratic Senator Jeff Merkley of Oregon, thank you very much for your time today. You're very welcome, Also, Thank you. Tupperware, which once revolutionized women's lives, is facing financial peril. The brand sealed its spot in American lore as a synonym for kitchen storage. But these days, Tupperware struggles to keep itself fresh, as NPR's Alina Seljuk reports. Goes in the big one, like that. Stacey Satung calls herself the Philly Tupperware lady. She started selling Tupperware during the pandemic, now trying it on Instagram and TikTok. I've gotten four sales from TikTok this week, which feels like so exciting. Individual dealers like her to this day are how Tupperware makes most of its money. They often sell on Facebook or at virtual parties. The company does have a website, thousands of trendy things like cold brew carafts and ice pop molds. But its fundamentals harken back to its roots. Tupperware is best when it's shown. Women selling to women, ideally in a living room. When I have the ability to go to a house and do a house party, I just love, love, love it. Because I can cut an onion for you in three seconds or we can bake a cake in the microwave. Now Tupperware is scrambling to avoid bankruptcy. This happened slowly over a decade. Growing debt, a shrinking sales force, declining sales. Faith Davis Ruffin says also huge shifts in our habits. I really think that it's people's lives. American lives change tremendously. She's a curator at the National Museum of American History, whose Tupperware collection is proof of just how influential these products once were. Close the door. Come in. In a storage room above the public museum, Ruffins opens a cabinet to a rainbow of pastels and earth tones. Various kinds of Tupperware that range from little cups to bigger storage bowls. Looks like some spoons. And some spears, like you put... um, Sandwiches. Yeah, little sandwiches or little finger food on. It's like a dream 1950s cupboard, except we have to wear surgical gloves. Well, you know, we're in the forever business. 
The forever business was certainly Tupperware's dream, the brainchild of inventor Earl Tupper. After World War II, he created the softer plastic and a patented lid with a double seal, said to be inspired by the paint can. Here's an early ad. You can freeze it, stack it, any which way. The invention really needed a show and tell. Enter a single mother in Detroit named Brownie Wise, who convinced Tupper to sell at Tupperware parties and led their runaway success. She tapped a cultural moment. Women lost wartime jobs back to men. A spike in divorces left Manny scrambling for income. And of course, the baby boom, sprawling suburbs, bigger families, housewives in aprons. The girls get together and meet their old friends and make some new ones. Then there's a demonstration. Tupperware ladies got a cut of each sale and won wild rewards like Cadillacs. Brownie Wise became the first woman on the cover of Business Week for letting generations of homemakers see themselves as saleswomen. Here's Ruffins. Tupperware becomes a kind of iconic example of home life and domesticity. It spread everywhere. Even the queen at Buckingham Palace was said to keep cornflakes in a Tupperware. When Tupper's patents expired in the 80s, his special lid became common, and his company name outgrew the company. Now we might buy Rubbermaid or Glad or OXO, but is it plastic for leftovers? That's a Tupperware. At the American History Museum, I ran into some high school students by display of classic Tupperware. How many of you knew it was an actual name of an actual brand? Is it a brand? It's a brand. Okay. No, I thought it was just the regular name for, like, containers. Now Tupperware's debt is over 10 times bigger than the company's value. For years, it spent big on dividends for shareholders and committed to selling through dealers instead of stores. Only last year did it finally sign a long-term partnership with Target. During the pandemic, when everyone cooked at home, Tupperware's profits suddenly surged. Executives claimed, see, things are turning around. But it was a blip. Ruffins, as a historian, takes the long view. Many American companies do not last 75 or 80 years. There is a saying that everyone dies twice, once with your last breath and again when your name is spoken for the last time. By that measure, Tupperware did crack the forever business, even if it goes out of business. Alina Selyuk, NPR News. Summer is around the corner, and in Georgia, summer means peaches. But roughly 90 percent of the peach state's crop has been destroyed. As WABE's Sam Greenglass reports from Atlanta, weather and climate are to blame. The last time things were this bad was 1955. That's according to Lawden Pearson, a Pearson farm in Fort Valley, Georgia. I didn't see it. I wasn't alive. <laughs> My dad was only six. My grandfather picked two peaches, and they went to California for the summer. Peaches require a minimum number of chill hours, below 45 degrees, to set fruit. But the first three months of this year were the warmest on record in Georgia, and chill hours here have been declining over the years. That is climate change. Growers are experimenting with new varieties that need fewer chill hours. Some of those did get the cold they needed, but right when they were blooming, a spurt of unlucky freezing weather. You have a low-chill peach that was perfectly fine with this winter. So it bloomed, and then it got four nights under 28. Can't win either way. So don't count on sinking your teeth into a peach from the peach state anytime soon. Not Georgia peaches. Uh Uh-uh. I don't think you'll see Georgia peaches in a grocery store. 
Pearson's summer staff will be down to 40 from the typical 250. He can't retreat to California like his grandfather did in 55. The business has diversified, including a growing pecan crop. But Pearson says looking at trees with no peaches is painful. Oh, God. Yeah. One bright spot, the few that do make it benefit from having all the sun, water, and nutrients to themselves. The peaches you're left with sometimes are fantastic, and they're huge, and they're sweeter than like, the peaches we have are awesome. It just leaves you want more. Pearson's ready for August, when peach season is over and he can look to next year. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 618. And coming up in about 10 minutes on Marketplace, taking a look at what happens to the communities left behind when colleges close their doors for good, how former college towns are trying to fill the empty real estate on abandoned campuses. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Red Fire Farm, organic summer farm shares with veggies, fruit, cheese, and more, home delivery, or see pickup locations at redfirefarm.com. The Cape Cod Regional Transit Authority is launching a reduced fare program to celebrate the 10th anniversary of the Cape Flyer. Round tip tick. Trip tickets are $10 for the month of June. The weekend train service has six stops between South Station in Boston and Hyannis, and people can bring their dogs and bikes for no charge. On Wall Street today, the Dow gained just under a half percent. The S&P was up about 1 percent. The Nasdaq closed the day up just under 1.3 percent. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Coolidge Corner Arts Festival, returning for its 43rd year. This Saturday, 11 to 6, artists, music, food trucks, wine, and beer. CoolidgeCornerArtsFestival.com. June got off to a fairly warm start today. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyes has the story on current conditions and what's next. Well, the sea breeze certainly brought some relief from the heat today, keeping the coast, including the city, around 80 this afternoon, still sweltering north and west of Boston. Temperatures tomorrow will be very similar. The difference is that tomorrow brings a threat for showers and storms scattered during the afternoon and evening. A few could be strong with downpours, lightning, gusty winds to keep an eye of the sky. Leftover rain and a gusty northeast wind, much cooler air moves in Friday night. will only be in the 50s for highs both Saturday and Sunday. Definitely a gloomy, raw feel. It is 81 degrees now in Boston. And start your Friday with WBUR tomorrow morning. MCAS is turning 25 and more and more districts in Massachusetts are expressing concerns about the high stakes test and are trying a very different approach to testing. That story and much more tomorrow morning here on 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include Babson, top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu slash MBA. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. As Chilean musician Alex Anvanter was putting together his latest album, he had a simple test to see if the songs were danceable. It was 
the middle of COVID, I didn't have like a dance studio in my bedroom using a yoga mat and wearing my AirPods, just like trying, trying it out in front of the mirror. That's right. It was a one-man bedroom mirror dance party. And that requirement, danceability, was crucial here. Anvantaire was set on making a dance album, or maybe more specifically, a dance floor album. To me, as a queer person, it has always functioned as some sort of, like, safe haven, I suppose. The result is an homage to dance floor culture and the liberation it provides. A disco-infected album called El Diablo en el Cuerpo, or The Devil in the Body. The album is a bit abstract, but it's also about the way we communicate with the body and it's a lot about desire as well and pursuing desire and the effects of pursuing desire and societal norms around pursuing desire. So I think when I'm saying I have the devil in my body, what I'm saying is I want to communicate my desire through my body Mm. and I don't care if that goes against certain social grain or whatever. So what happens when you give yourself over to desire? Well, for instance, it might go against what is perceived as like true love, saying only being sexually with one person for the rest of your life. But also it's, for me, desire also is extremely related to self-image yeah. and how we want to be and how we communicate that. It's a very like complex web of desires that we act upon or repress and somehow I think the nightlife kind of dissolves or all of that repression and those rules and that's why I kind of set the themes of the of the album in the dance floor so to speak. I want to ask you about the song Una de Nosotras which is about growing up queer in Santiago, Chile. What was your childhood like? I know that's a huge question, (laughs) but uh, paint some broad brushstrokes for me. Well, for starters, I grew up in the middle of the dictatorship. Uh, I was born in 83. The dictatorship of Pinochet ended in 89. And uh, it was such a different country, like very strange, politically silent. Mm. There was nothing to be said about any social issues. It was a pretty conservative society, and growing up queer was a little weird, I guess. Going to gay clubs or something wasn't like something that was very accepted or even like common. I remember in 2011, so not that long ago, I put out a song, it was kind of a love song, directed to a boy, a guy, mm-hmm. and uh, it was all over the news, like, it was a first in Chile. It was revolutionary to be seen <laughs> Yeah, it was like so that. weird, like, I didn't even think about that, like, that there hadn't been any, like, love songs, like, same-sex love songs before I wrote that. Well, I wanted to ask you about the juxtaposition between the lyrics in Una de Nosotras, which are heavy, but but the song 
it's kind of a beat. It's got this classic yeah. <laughs> house feel. I mean, one of the lyrics is, I've been hiding from others for a while. Friend, I don't want to feel life is broken. Was it purposeful to dress up such a difficult story inside such an happy beat? <laughs> no, it's kind of a, a thing I do, and I really like it. I, I find that, like, ebullient music tends to go very well with dramatic lyrics. This is something that I feel is very Latino. <laughs> <laughs> but also, I think the feeling of ecstasy that a beat or, like, a dance song can produce goes really well when you're trying to be vulnerable and connect emotionally and the, the, it produces a sort of a deeper elation if you will when you're dancing and at the same time thinking about something that's kind of profound right well can i also ask one of the lyrics in that same song is take me to the blondie which is <laughs> yeah. a dance club in santiago right yeah was this a club that that meant something quite important to you when you were growing up there yeah for sure it's like uh almost a rite of initiation going to blondie discotheque it's still there it's an institution now i go do shows mostly there but i can't go because there's too many people that listen to my music so i can't really go like incognito once i <laughs> i wore up like a bandana around my my face and people still recognize me it was like how do Good you ever. know it's me like it was so weird anyway uh it's a great place and uh, i remember my first time there i don't know exactly what i was wearing i must have been like 14 or 15 people go out really young <laughs> in South America yeah. parenthesis I love um, and someone pointed at me and said like oh the little boys choir of Vienna or something <laughs> I was like what <laughs> like I thought I was dressing like super cool <laughs> Well, you are now based in New York City, and um, it made me wonder, do you miss the dance floors of Santiago? It's a great question. I do, and at the same time, I had to say goodbye to them before leaving Chile. Not to toot my own horn, but I'm more famous <laughs> there than I'm here, obviously. Um, so I couldn't really go out dancing that much as much ah, as I wanted. But you enjoy the greater anonymity in New York City that you have yes, when you go out absolutely. dancing? absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so Alex, when you are seized with the desire to go and dance, please tell me you go further than your yoga mat. <laughs> <laughs> well, the yoga mat was my COVID. Uh, it was co a COVID restraint, so yeah. I like disco, actually. I like dancing to disco music, and there's great disco parties uh, here in, in New York, so... That's my go-to, I think. That is Chilean singer, songwriter, and producer, Alex Anvanter. His new album is called El Diablo and El Cuerpo. Thank you so much. I so enjoyed this. Thank you.
You're listening to All Things Considered. It is 81 degrees in Boston with some showers and thunderstorms in the forecast for tomorrow. Good evening. I'm Sharon Brody. Thanks for joining 90.9 WBUR. Marketplace is next at 630, including a look at where the money goes after the tip at self-checkout. Also, you'll hear a former bartender discussing his new job managing a used Lego store. Listening to 90.9 WBUR is a great way to keep up with the news. Another easy option? checking your inbox. Each weekday morning, WBUR Today gives you a quick read on what matters in Boston and beyond. Subscribe now. Just go to WBUR.org slash newsletters. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders, movers, and changemakers to close opportunity gaps, advance equity, empower a better Boston. Learn more at tbf.org.